Chapter 5, Explore. Before I get into my reaction to the breakup, I want to pause here for a minute and address what may be the elephant in the room. Two years, four sexual partners. Some people are reading this book and haven't even noticed that. Others have been keeping count. The dreaded body count. First, we'll address that. Then I'll bring up the closely related topic, the hoe phase, before we delve back into the story. Mores are changing. Many girls may no longer be raised on the Rose Doctrine, and maybe where you live, body counts are a non-issue. I was raised to think they were a big issue. I expected to have one lover for life, the man I was engaged to. Then, two, my first husband. And when three came around, it really bothered me. Four was my second husband, and part of the reason I stayed so long was not wanting to increase my number. Some people might say, every woman has a whore, ho phase. I don't believe that, but I never presume to speak for every woman. I'll just say, I found it ludicrous at 50 that I was worried about some critic out there, some future boyfriend, husband, date, scoffing at my number. Who gave him the right to decide how many partners I should have? It seemed to echo the birth control debate. Insurances would often cover Viagra, but not birth control for women. I guess in their minds, the consequence of having sex was motherhood. If women weren't trying to procreate, we shouldn't be having sex. In my mind, I got more discriminating about my sexual partners, not less. From 18 to 43, I'd gone on six first dates with different men. All six dates later turned into relationships. Four of those relationships became sexual. Two of them became marriages. So that was four out of six, or in other words, a man dating me then had a 70% chance of sex. Although I only recorded 101 dates in this book, there were 147 and eight lovers total, including the four from chapters one to four. That means a man had a 5% chance of sex with me from the time I was 43 till now. I'd hardly call that a hoe phase. 12 is a nice round number. Above the average seven lifetime partners I read somewhere. So the idea of a hoe phase seems far-fetched to me. Again, according to whom, on what grading scale. Some people think knowing the body count tells them something about a person. I wonder what that something is. Does it tell you a person is frigid or promiscuous? What number equals which? Does it tell you he or she can or can't be faithful? How? I believe that I was born in interesting times when a woman like me could write a book like this to talk about my life and the society that shaped the people I met. I see my journey as representative of other women's, those who shed the Rose Doctrine, the obsession with being chosen by a man as commitment worthy, the bondage of constantly worrying about her body count or what she did, said, wore that could get her called a hoe. We are women biologically mature adult females, and we are ladies, classy and respectable. And it's not your judgments that make either so. After the breakup, I spent a day stunned, heartbroken. I actually don't think I'd fully gotten over the loss till writing this book, an unexpected catharsis. Then I thought of Gatsby. I was horny. I'd been horny so long that it had become like an ache, like an old war wound I felt with every motion. I deleted Gatsby's number. 
I tried to see if it was in the cloud somewhere. Nope. I went back to my AT&T statement 10 months before and found the three most frequently dialed numbers. Number one, nope. Number two, no dice. Number three, Gatsby. I was embarrassed, apologetic, rambling incoherently, explaining what happened. He was sympathetic. He wanted to see me, needed to call me back. I hung up. Then I felt confused. I was wet. Why? Shit. I forgot what it felt like to be aroused. That was stunning. I had been in love, love, but sometime long ago, I had stopped feeling aroused. I let that realization sink in. Then I waited all night for a call that never came. I called him back the next day. Why didn't you call? I did, he said. I didn't get a call. Did you block me? I checked. Yep, I did. He had called like seven times. He said, I'm on my way. He came, walked through the door and enveloped me. We didn't speak, just stripped and fell into each other. I was not gentle. I clawed up his back. He didn't mind. He was not gentle. He left palm prints on my ass, pulled my hair so hard I winced. I did not mind. We made love till we could no longer move. He said, you're never leaving me again. You're mine. I said nothing. I didn't trust what I would say. To him, us making love meant I had never loved the muse. That wasn't true. I hurt deeper from his loss than either of my two divorces. Synopsis. To all the yous I've loved. I can erase you from my tango, erase you from my phone, erase you from my timeline, but the memories aren't gone. I can wash away your fragrance, drop off all you own, but a piece of me is altered. A part of me seems gone. I picture me at 20, like an uncut diamond prime, full of life, full of love, leaving sheltered life behind. Naive and full of promise with no ceiling overhead, my first boyfriend's lies trash my name, reputation dead. On to 22, sex is all brand new, but insecurities bloom fully when critique is all you do. And suddenly forever evaporates like morning dew. 24 brings marriage, babies, bills, the bliss of young love turned to chills, rejection, infidelity, selfishness galore. Was I the only one signed up to love, honor, and adore? Two things I couldn't picture happened right before my face. Security and commitment usurped by hatred and disgrace. 31. Disgusted. All men do is seem to lie. I make a list of 10 traits I wish he would live by. And when I couldn't hold much longer, you came like summer rain. For a minute, you seemed to wipe away all my pain. But you were a runner when challenges arose, leaving me alone glaring problems nose to nose. Hardest things I've ever done, I had to face afraid. You left me feeling worthless, broken, and betrayed. 43 and starting over, a half a lifetime gone. I hit the internet for frivolity and fun. Didn't know it was a whirlpool that could suck up all my time. Didn't know I'd wade through fuckboys like sliding down Soul Train's line. 46 and older, 
wiser, stronger, more secure, but unsure how many new starts I can endure. I can erase you from my tango, but a song still brings you near. I can erase you from my timeline. That doesn't stop the fears of lost time, lost money, new scars. I guess somewhere inside me, like a pack of nesting dolls, is the love, trust, hope, and certainty that exists behind my walls. The next six months were frustrating. Gatsby took standing me up to a whole new level. He felt justified. I had left him for a whole other relationship. I told him his feelings were illogical. We were never together. He said, then why does it bother you? I stand you up. I'd say it's disrespectful to stand anyone up. Then came the fence. After a local thunderstorm, my fence was never the same. The homeowners association was hounding me. I had homeowners insurance and a $1,000 deductible. I couldn't afford the deductible. Gatsby said he could fix it. I told him it really needed to be done. I'd gotten two estimates. The cheapest was $700. He told me he could do it for $200. We went to Home Depot, bought the materials. They sat for a month. I got fined $25 from my HOA. I hounded him more. They sat for another two months. Two more fines, $75 total. I stopped speaking to him, texted him to lose my number. San Antonio was ecstatic. He hated Gatsby. Said Gatsby treated me like shit, that all his excuses were bullshit. During these three months, Gatsby and I barely communicated, much less saw each other. Later, he would say that he was having health issues. He hadn't wanted to see me because I already had this complex about his size and what that meant for his health, and he didn't want his health concerns to add fuel to the fire. At the time, so many things went through my mind. When I came back after the muse, Gatsby claimed he'd moved out, got a car, and that his mom got sick again and he moved back and crashed his car. That I missed the proof that he was self-sufficient and financially stable. That was convenient. With his more frequent absences, our distance, I thought he might be married. Anyway, he said he wanted me to believe in the possibility of us, that we could have more than just sex, and I gave him the fence. And he worked on it one day, replaced three boards, and never tended to it again. I hated him. I felt embarrassed talking to the HOA, embarrassed giving the news that he'd done nothing to my sister in San Antonio. I started dating again while I tried to find a contractor I could afford. Date 36. King Kong had the biggest dick, according to a picture he showed, that I'd ever seen. Too big to attempt, in fact. Well, him showing me that picture backfired. Date 37. Prince was a longshoreman covered in tattoos and muscles, but he gave off so many mixed signals our whole date that a string of questions from the song Controversy was playing in my head. Date 38, Don Juan Daffy Duck. I was actually having a really good time with him, although he smiled really hard and big like elementary school kids who haven't gotten used to their teeth yet. We started making out in my car after a movie. He totally ruined the mood by trying to talk sexy, but sounding more like a cartoon character. I stopped kissing and wanted to say, do it again, do it again. But I was afraid I would laugh. I've never found cartoon characters sexy, so that was the end of romance for us. Date 39. Game Boy spent our whole date on the phone, checking on the online game that he'd left to meet me. 
date 40. NASCAR showed me all his NASCAR pictures and rushed our date to make sure he was back home for the opening ceremonies. Date 41. One minute Nate was sexy, very desirable, and we met at Tutti Frutti for frozen yogurt. He got excited over our first kiss, too excited. Stain on pants, excited. I didn't know men in their 40s still did that. For the first five or so months after the muse, I wrote very little, but followers on Tango kept asking, so eventually I started posting poems again. And one day, there was a DM that stood out. I had posted something pretty metaphysical and didn't really expect anyone to read it or respond. He did both, understanding the totality of the poem on such a level that I almost wondered if I had somehow plagiarized his brain. We exchanged numbers and for a week or two talked. Conversations I had never had before. Metaphysics, crystals, meditation, astral projection, and more. Once, I would have never even let these be mentioned to me. It was unorthodox, heresy, satanic, I'd once been told. But those same people who warned me against sage burning, tarot, palm reading, and horoscopes had gone silent in the face of real evils like the sexual abuse I'd experienced as a child and the domestic violence I faced as an adult. Their judgment seemed suspect to me now. I thought about meeting Mystique, but two things stopped me. One, he was celibate till he met the woman he planned to marry. You already know how I felt about that. Two, he wouldn't go out with me unless I deleted my profiles and saw only him. Now, I was no stranger to exclusivity, and I had given it to JJ for six months and Gatsby for even longer, although neither had ever asked. It was organic, something I wanted to do because my needs were met and I had what I wanted at the time and did not need to look any further. But a man demanding it, even before a first date, screamed entitlement to me. I heard his arguments Mystique didn't want to compete. He wanted to know I was truly invested, focused, not distracted by other men. He wanted to build trust and couldn't see spending money on a woman who was still looking at and for other men. To me, these all said insecure, controlling, and premature. To me, it harkened back to the days of yore when old maids wrung their hands hoping for a male glance and felt oh so honored when male interest came their way and did anything to keep it. His stimulating conversation was not proof of relational compatibility. In fact, after the muse, I didn't plan on committing to someone unless we were sexually compatible and he was celibate. I was not committing to a man who might leave me high and dry, double entendre intended, literally. I declined. He hung up and I expected I would never hear from him again. But he had me thinking, researching, exploring, and I wrote this, gazing at the dark side of the moon. In the beginning was the word and the word was God. And that word told Adam and Eve that they could eat from all the trees of the garden, but the tree of knowledge. You are knowledge infinite. I see it, recognize it, crave it like Eve did the power to become as God, having access to all that is hidden. That desire destroyed a perfect Eden. Whether it is Pandora or Eve, the story is the same. Search for forbidden knowledge and be cursed. Bring suffering and shame to all. 
You embrace all ways of knowledge as coming from one source. I see one way as truth and all others as deception. You believe all knowledge is divine. I believe that just as a child may be too young to learn certain truths, mankind as a species is immature to handle the unknowable. For you, darkness, the unknown, is something to be embraced, something you claim is your identity. I am a child of the light, having come out of the darkness. You seek knowledge. I seek love. If Eve had chosen love over knowledge, mankind would have ruled over the earth in its perfection, but she chose knowledge and fell. Although I have not found my Adam yet, I choose to love him. In another life, I might have sat under a cassava tree, feeding you figs and nectar, fanning your face after you preached to our tribe. In this one, I chose my path. You are darkness, the unknowable, the hidden, the occult. I choose to walk in the light. Reading that poem now, I have mixed feelings. As you probably noticed in chapter two, when I mentioned my feelings on Eve, once I too blamed her for seeking knowledge. Now I applaud her. Once I saw her search as a betrayal of her love for God and her man, Now I feel that she should never have been asked to choose between self-actualization and spirituality or love. Back then I saw light and dark as separate, opposite. Now they are a continuum, one arising from the other, one incomplete without the other. The biggest light in my life then was my sons. Brilliant, talented, handsome. I put them in college during the summers while in high school. They'd attended the exclusive Wunshi High School that was covered in 60 minutes, a school that required an interview recommendation, a contract, and excellent grades to be accepted, a school with a waiting list. They were lights. And sometimes they were headlights heading straight my way, about to crash into everything I tried to build for myself, for them. I missed having a dad in the house, but not enough to get back with Drew. Date 42. And then I got a Facebook DM that gave me a compliment, a number, and asked me on a date. I called the number and was impressed with the guy and accepted. Harley Davidson and I met at Texas Roadhouse. Leather jacket, cool, laid back. His style drew me in and made me smile. The click. I wonder if it's only me. I hate partial compatibility The man who's cute but bores to tears. The fun dude lacking suitable years. The one who's stable with no time. The one who lingers on my mind but may be too scarred to love again. The one who just wants to friend. The mama's boy, the baby maker. The heartbroken still pining for his ex chaser. The one without a thought to share who looks so cool and debonair. The jealous one, possessive, scary. The one who wants a living Barbie. I hate to say it, men hate it too. When will a real man come through? It matters if you can talk and think. It matters how you dress and eat. They matter your priorities. A job's not all I want or need. Stability and intellect. Articulate with some respect. Masculine and supportive, sensual and erotic. No milk toast man will do for me. No feminine wiles I need to see. Shallowness is unappealing. Have something to you worth revealing. Don't make excuses for your faults. Don't point the finger. Pay the cost. I'm constantly working on me. I'd like that in my mate to be. Goals, plans, a little discipline. No victim mentality at hand. What once was called a man's man 
can handle his woman, hangs with the guys too, is balanced about what he needs to do, has got an edge, an alpha, bold, knows what to do without being told. The man who causes that inward sigh, the anticipatory twinkle in his eye, how I miss you, how I crave you, how I hope to see you one day standing next to me. A square peg, a round hole will not fit. Show up. I wait for our satisfying click. The chemistry was intense, electric, heady. The food was great. The conversation steady. I was having fun. And then I remembered the fence. What's wrong, he asked. Just something I need to fix. I'll figure it out. Maybe I can help. I told him the story, the storm, the letter from the HOA, Gatsby, three months, three fines. Now the HOA was threatening court. I can fix it. I laughed. No, no, really, I can fix it. This week, I'll need some help. Can you get one of your sons? Yeah. He came over, looked at the pile in the garage, the $200 haul Gatsby said I needed, shook his head, and we bought a whole new set of items. My 22-year-old son helped him. I cooked lunch, dinner, brought them beers and sodas. In one day, it was done and beautiful. And he and my son had bonded to boot. The next six months were incredible. Month one, we became committed after a long conversation in which I asked, was he sure? Was he ready? I didn't want to introduce him to my friends, family, kids as my man. And then we break up. He was ready. He was sure with a capital S. I committed. We cooked together, spent weekends together, did chores together, hung out and had sex. Sex was a problem. His performance, my drive. Once again, every time I committed, it was an issue. But with JJ and Gatsby, the men I had no title with, sex had never been an issue. I was so tired of it. Although I wrote the poem below for the muse, parts of it still fit Harley. My second try at a relationship after my divorce and we felt like star-crossed lovers. Star-crossed lovers. A voluptuous woman in your bed, for most, that shit goes to the head. But him, he felt unmatched and drowned. Instead of up, his dick fell down. And that shit sucks. It blows. It stinks. A gorgeous man with sexy winks whose skills in bed are so unsure, you wonder if he's tried before. The fucker can't undress a doll, can't stroke, can't hang, can't fuck at all. You've tried to teach him, that's for sure. But even a pro fails an amateur. Where to begin with his reserve? He blushes just to see your curves. You tame yourself. It's not enough. His bruised ego isn't tough. You're quiet, patient, damn near asleep. But to him, your sex drive is steep. No matter you're in neutral, pause, he lacks the skill to slick your draws. Intimidated, he breaks down, throws in the towel, forfeits the round. You're matchless and he knows he's beat. He runs a rabbit for the street. You watch him, shattered, having given all the passion from you driven. You sacrifice your soul for love because his heart fit like a glove. A man he wasn't, a boy instead, who couldn't handle a tigress in bed. Such a waste. Such loss of time. But for a moment, a love sublime had fired your heart, had filled your head. It crashed and burned when bodies met bed.
My poetry absorbed the brunt of my sexual frustration. I was happy with everything else. And I had my family back. My kids, grown men now, but still needing guidance, had a man around they felt comfortable with. I felt maternal and settled and so at peace. Holidays were holidays again. Presents, food, family, extended family. I felt a wholeness I had not felt since the divorce. I could do this for the rest of my life. We were even planning our first vacation, Vegas. I'd never been. I was so excited. Summer was coming. We were going. May 3rd, 2017. I wrote this in my journal. I titled it Peace. I rarely title my journals, but this one had that one word description. It is pouring down right now. This time last year and all the years before, I would have hated hearing the raindrops. Rain made me long for physical connection And it seemed like I was frequently alone when it happened, but this year is different. I'm so much more at peace, able to embrace solitude. Even when it rains, I have more faith in the future and it has a lot to do with the man in my life. He has weathered many storms and they've made him calm and decisive and grounded. He's rubbed off on me and I'm learning to relax in areas where I was a little impatient and I'm grateful for that lesson. Then... Harley told me he was filing for bankruptcy. Huh? He just bought a motorcycle four months before and told me to plan a vacation three weeks before. Now he was in over his head meeting with a lawyer. Why did he even bring up a vacation? I felt like I couldn't trust his judgment. That peace I had felt suffused with from his words, his decisiveness was ripped away. I had been happy, content, at peace, and he led me on, made me imagine new adventures and horizons we'd explore. Then abruptly announced that was all a pipe dream. That was our first fight. And afterward, he was moody. I wrote in my journal that night. Today, I saw a man post a question about why women were moody. He was given the answer hormones. True, but I gave a different response. People are moody. Men have been moody for centuries and women have been by and large socialized to cater to men's moods, to not appear too smart, too forward, too provocative, too accomplished, too assertive, too anything. The whole world has revolved around men's moods. We even have sayings like boys will be boys to explain away men giving into their moods. But now women are refusing to water themselves down. And for some men, this change is a problem. The scene from Coming to America comes to mind. The woman trained to like whatever the king liked. Exaggeration for sure, but a partially accurate depiction of male-female relationships for centuries. So deal with it. People have moods. Some are more even-tempered than others, but women are no longer socialized except in the workplace to hide their emotions for fear of displeasing men. Also, you as a man have tremendous influence on our moods Romantic words, kind gestures, compliments, sex, being helpful, go a long way with most women. A man with the right skill set learns his woman and knows what to do with each mood. Women have learned to deal with men's moods for centuries. It's your turn. I wasn't having his moods, and I wanted an apology. I'd asked him not to even bring up things like vacations that were wishful thinking, have me thinking they were something we were going to do. I'd had that done before. I hated it. He apologized, 
things went back to normal. He told me that he didn't have time for a relationship a few weeks later. His job had doubled his hours from 8 to 16, and while that would solve his money problems, it meant there was no time for us. What? 16 hours? People work that all the time and make relationships work, I said. Well, he didn't see how he could. I was dumbfounded. I I just asked you about being sure, being ready. I didn't want to introduce you to my family and friends if you weren't sure. My mind flitted back to a comment my brother-in-law had made about part of his excitement for the upcoming holidays being centered around who I would bring to dinner. This ironic jab seemed unfounded since I'd only ever brought one person since my divorce, the muse. Still, it stung and made me embarrassed. I thought Harley would be my plus one at all the future family gatherings, but I guess I was wrong. I remember when my brother-in-law's comment was made, I laughed, picturing the memes about what aunt are you? There was an aunt always with a new boyfriend, never thought I'd be her when I hadn't even shown up with boyfriend number two yet. I know, I'm sorry, I didn't see this coming, Harley stated, interrupting my thoughts. Huh? I thought you were making the decision that whatever came, we would work it out. We would work through it, figure it out. You mean you were telling me? You were committing to me? Only if nothing changed in your life, if nothing got challenging? I was disgusted. People throw around the word commitment and want to save sex for relationships, for a title that's supposed to provide security and safety and longevity. I'd had more commitment from Gatsby, who kept calling and texting and coming over even when he knew I was still dating and had heard me say probably 50 times once since he met me that we couldn't be together. I'd even gone off and had another relationship and he'd responded when we reconnected, you're never leaving me again, you're mine. I had said nothing to Gatsby's comment, had dropped him again after a DM, a first date, a chance at a committed relationship with a man with his own vehicle, two of them, his own house, a job that had him home every night. I pictured a stable home life and family, and I got all for six months until his work schedule changed. I found out our plans, our declarations, our love, our future all erased by a schedule that could be changed back just as quickly and arbitrarily as it was altered at first. It felt like deja vu. My ex-husband years before had acted as if going to the doctor and taking me on a date once a month was an impossible task. Now Harley saw it impossible to make time for me with a a 16-hour-a-day schedule. He still had days off. But they wouldn't be for me, for us. They were only for him, alone. I knew men who had stuck by their wives, their girlfriends, through infidelity, through terminal diagnoses, through mental illness. In both cases, other couples would have easily made this work. Other men would have barely even registered these as challenges. I felt really disposable. As much as these men espouse my value... And even though my ex-husband, Drew, finally did go to the doctor and then spent the entire time I was with JJ, Gatsby, and Harley trying to convince me to take him back, begging, pleading, apologizing, I still felt, when I was a little girl, I saw daddy's girls and marveled, so secure, so pampered, so adored. My father was different. 
He'd married my mom knowing he was a rebound, a fling, just because she was pregnant. I might be his. And he'd seen my grandfather beat my mother with his fist when Papai found out my mother was with child. It was my father's duty to raise me, not his joy. And a few times in my life, he let me know this. I mostly tried to stay invisible, out of the way, and ask for nothing. I wasn't owed anything. He provided all my needs except the need to feel wanted, loved, appreciated, connected. That came once in a while, like Christmas or my birthday, an unexpected present dropped off unannounced. In fact, I never fully got it till I was grown when my dad apologized and began trying to make up for the wounds he caused. What was automatic for other children, for other women, seemed to be a tall order for men to give me. I worked so hard at getting it, that love, acceptance, recognition, security, that feeling that this was my place and nothing or no one could take it from me. I tried to be the perfect daughter, girlfriend, wife. Let me cater to you. My actions, attitude, demeanor, appearance, me, alterable, malleable, like putty in their hands. I was fitted to their mold, trying my best to be perfect for them, the ones I committed to. Then... All that sacrifice, catering, pampering, compromise was no longer good enough. Me asking for next to nothing was still asking for too much. I was suddenly too visible. My demand for their time, bodies, and inconvenience. And this time, I felt near my breaking point. The breaking point. Sometimes I wonder if it's out there, the point of no return, especially after reading Facebook posts. Damn, some of us have been burned and scarred and changed and warped so badly that it's plain to see the bitterness and suspicion broadcasted so broadly. When I divorced, I feared this most, not singleness, but spite, not loneliness, not emptiness, but losing all delight, all hope, all faith in men per se. Instead, seeing just dogs, users, abusers, pieces of crap, feral, worthless cogs. I've dodged those landmines four years now, but still I've come so close to losing all respect for those with opposite chromosomes. But you, you seem so special, different all with promises so new, but it's all lies six months in. What's a girl to do? Breaking up seems pointless to do what? Restart the cycle again? Cheating seems so cliche, should we go back to just friends? Can't change my orientation, though it crossed my mind to try. Just want to strike out, punish you. For now, my endless sky is fragmented and shrunken, a broken picture in a frame. Because love, commitment, promises seem like just some kind of game. The Dearest Bill I loved a man with heart so true, silly me, thought he was you. But I forgot how deep dreams flow. They change the tides, illusions show. They make hell heaven. Lies are kissed. Signs of betrayal all but missed. The mind is blind once love arise, bound, gagged, deaf to reason's cries. That's why betrayal so severe, a sudden drop from height so sheer, Mirages twinge on its facade, heat dancing, an oasis mirage, a beautiful lie, a well-played part. All it cost was my whole heart. Lesson five. So on July 26, 2017, I learned lesson 5A 
A title does not equal commitment. And lesson 5B, define commitment. A month later, Hurricane Harvey hit Houston. The flood took his Harley, a lawnmower I gave him, and the house he'd said he needed time to work on. It took his car too, and he had no way to get to work. And he lost the job that he was working so many hours on. He got evicted. He reached out to me and told me all this. And I said, if we were together, you'd have a place to stay with me. He said, I know, and cried. The flood brought something else, Gatsby.